Luke chapter 4, 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. In our text this morning, we see the launch of Jesus' ministry into this region of Galilee. Verses 14 through 15 kind of serve as a, a summary of, of what's going on. Jesus, at some point, he, he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, and he was glorified or praised rejoiced in by all. And though these are just two short verses here, they're likely a summary of, a, of a, a, at least a year-long period of Jesus' ministry in this region of Galilee. He, he is working in this area, and, and all the way from this point in Luke four fourteen through Luke chapter 9, verse 50. So for the next five chapters or so, we're going to be looking at Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Luke is not um, doggedly chronological here. So he goes into Galilee, and, he's, and we'll see many places as we go along. Uh, he'll say something like, and he went, and, and when it was day, and, and on one occasion, and while he was in one of the cities, on one of those days. If you kind of look on down through your gospel of Luke, Luke isn't necessarily saying, this day he did this, then he went this day he did this, then he did this. 
he's saying he's kind of giving a summary. Well, he did this, and on another day he did this, and kind of summarizes his ministry in Galilee. And the reason why I bring that up is that likely this rejection at Nazareth didn't happen immediately. It wasn't like he came out of the temptation, went to Galilee, went to his hometown, and there's this rejection. And the reason why we know that it's not immediate, because they at Nazareth heard this, this tell of he did amazing works in Capernaum. He said, all these great things you did there, why can't you do them here? So Jesus goes into this Galilean ministry. And so Luke, Luke brings this section to the forefront of Jesus' Galilean ministry for a purpose. He, he selects this retelling of events at the front end of his ministry for a reason. Now, Luke doesn't really tell us why. He doesn't like, well, I'm telling you this now because... But you can kind of gather some ideas about why this would be first. This gives us a template, a template of, of what Christ's ministry was like. He would show up at a place, go into a synagogue and be widely, affirmatively received. People would enjoy him. He'd be glorified by all. People would appreciate him. He'd show up, and there'd be this joyous reception. What an amazing teacher this guy is. He, he talks like no one else we've ever heard talk. He's so learned. He's got all these... He's, he's just a fascinating person to listen to. No one has taught. We read in other places in our gospel. No one has taught like him before, and there's this reception of him. And then Jesus gets into the hard central issues of his teaching. He starts calling out sin. He starts telling people about his reality of him being the Savior, being the Messiah. And what we see is a giant rejection of Jesus' claim to being the Messiah. And then as a result of his reception and then this scorn, he is tried to be killed. And eventually, he won't, they won't just try to kill him. Eventually, they, they will kill him. They take him to this cliff to throw him off. It's a way of stoning back in the day. was to just instead of throw a bunch of stones at you, we're going to throw you at the stones. And Jesus disappears through them. But it's kind of a template of, of how Jesus' ministry goes. Jesus' ministry would have very positive and affirming reactions when he would go around. But most of the time, those reactions did not hold out. And the people would become provoked in their anger, and they would be provoked many times even to the desire to murder him. My big idea from this morning is, let me give it to you up front. We're going to get to it again here at the end. But the big idea, if you want to tune out, if you tune out for a while here in the middle, the big idea is that neither familiarity with Jesus nor familiarity to Jesus is a sufficient replacement for faith in Jesus. Neither familiarity with Jesus nor familiarity to Jesus is a sufficient replacement for faith in Jesus. That's where we're headed. Neither familiarity with Jesus nor familiarity to Jesus is a sufficient replacement for faith in Jesus for who He is. That's where we're headed. I said it three times already. All right, so that's where we're headed, but I want to get through some of these details. It's it's interesting. So at some point in, in this ministry, after news is spread around in Galilee, Jesus has walked around this region, he goes back to his hometown, Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is about uh, three and a half miles. I've done my three and a half miles south of uh, Sephoris, I think is the name of the town. Not Sephora, ladies. Sephoris, uh, the capital city of Galilee. It's three and a half miles south of there. And, and word of him has spread around. Now, 
you would think, well, this, they don't have telephones. How did, they, how did news of Jesus spread around? I found, I, this was fascinating to me. The region of Galilee, from what I was able to gather from my commentaries and whatever, is about 25 miles wide and 40 miles tall. That's about 1,000 square miles. Now you say, my wife says 1,000 square miles. Oh, thanks, for, thanks for the information, Darren. That doesn't help me at all. So what we're talking about, and it's a region of space that's basically Ringgold County and Union County together. That's this region of Galilee. We're not talking about like it's Minnesota, Iowa, and Missouri, and Jesus has got this large ground to cover. A couple of counties in Iowa is the size of this space. In fact, if you're ambitious and, and feeling strong and healthy and want to go do something, you can go to Galilee, and, and there's a tour that is, that is a hiking tour that has you walk through all of these cities that Jesus visited, and it's, it's a 40-mile hike. Which, I mean, isn't that bad? I walked in a day, 40 miles a hike. That's not too bad. That's a, that's a doable distance. And so Jesus would spend his time in his ministry just walking from Kellerton to Caledonia to, you know, all those little ghost towns we don't have anymore. He just kind of popped around from these little towns. And if they had 10 men in it, they'd have a synagogue in the town. And he'd go and he'd visit this synagogue and he would preach. So Galilee, being this small region, word spread pretty quickly for a year's worth of ministry. And Jesus, on this Sabbath day, which was Saturday, right? Saturday is the seventh day of the week. The Jews gathered on the Sabbath. They gathered on Saturday. And so they would gather, and as was his custom, we see in verse 16, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Side note, if Jesus finds Uh, attending the corporate gathering uh, important. (laughs) The Son of God shows up to earth and thinks, you know what, I should probably go to church. And the same rebuke that we kind of get in the temptations, that if if Jesus found it important to know his Bible so that he could ward off the temptations of the enemy, and so maybe we should take some clue, maybe we should know our book, our Bible as well. If Jesus finds corporate worship, Jesus now, Son of God incarnate, as his custom is, shows up to the corporate gathering, we likely should probably put some importance on that as well. That's a side note. I'm off that, that uh, soapbox. So Jesus, as his custom, he shows up at the synagogue and he stands up to read. Uh, the, the custom was, as you're a, a traveling uh, teacher, a rabbi, they would have, like I said, the synagogue is, a synagogue is available or can be, put together if there's 10 men in the city. But they weren't necessarily all wanting to teach. And so there'd be traveling rabbis who'd come around. And if the leader of the synagogue thought, oh, Jesus is in town, that, that, he's a famous rabbi, let's have him teach. And so he shows up and he teaches and he stands up. The order of service, uh, they, would, they would show up, sing psalms, songs. They would sing their hymn book, which is the psalms. They'd sing a psalm or two. They would have benedictions. They would have a reading of the law, and then they would probably read it in Hebrew, interpret it into Aramaic for the listeners. Then they'd have a reading of the prophet in Hebrew, the prophets, which is Isaiah, where Jesus reads from. Read from the prophets in Hebrew, translate to Aramaic, and then someone would give an exposition. They would say, here's what the text means. You kind of see some similarity with how we structure our modern church, structured off of kind of the Jewish synagogue, that that. Tradition has retained of someone gathering together, singing some songs, opening up the word, reading a section of scripture, giving an explanation. It's kind of the way they did it. So Jesus shows up, stands up, and he's given the scroll of Isaiah. 
Likely he chose this section. He didn't turn, he didn't flap his pages, right? He unrolled to the section of Isaiah. Again, Jesus' familiarity with the scripture. Hebrew doesn't have paragraphs, doesn't have chapter headings. It's read, it's read right to left, not left to right, with no spaces whatsoever. So for Jesus to find his portion of Hebrew, he's got to know right where he's looking for in Isaiah 61, which is where this is found, Isaiah 61. So he shows up and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. To do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, speaking of a jubilee, which we don't have time to talk about this morning. But what's the context of, of what Isaiah 61 is referring to there? In this section of Isaiah 61, it's well toward the end of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 books. Um, this is pointless to tell you this. Isaiah 6 has 66 books. There's also 66 books of the Bible. So there's a fun little trivia thing that you can think of. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. And interestingly, there's 39 Old Testament books. And there's at the 39th chapter to the 40th chapter of Isaiah. Never mind. That was pointless. <laughs> comfort, my people, comfort. The New Testament begins in Isaiah chapter 40. I don't know why I bothered with that. So he gets up and he's speaking on here of Isaiah 61. And there's this, this idea of this, there's this one is coming. Isaiah is prophesying. One is coming who's anointed and he's going to proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Recovering their sight to the blind. Set at liberty to those who are oppressed. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This messenger, this anointed one, he's coming. He's coming, and there's this expectation coming out of the prophets that they're looking, and Judaism, they're looking, looking, this anointed one is coming. And Jesus reads this out, sits down, not, not in the pew to get away. That's how they assumed their chair to teach. They would sit to teach. He sits down, and everyone's, what's he going to teach? How's he going to explain? How's he going to exposit this passage? And he does so by saying, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He says, what Isaiah was saying about this anointed one that we're all looking for, it's me. I'm right, it's me. Now, they go on, okay, so we'll, we'll, let's get through the details. At first, they're, wow, this guy teaches amazingly, the crowd reaction, they're very impressed by him, what a speaker Jesus was, but soon their familiarity kicks in, and they begin to say, uh, didn't we help change his diaper? They didn't say that. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? But I mean, you know, you kind of extrapolate to what we all think about. I went to school with that guy, right? And now he's saying he's the anointed one. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this... Is, did, wait a sec, I redid my bathroom and he helped uh, put the tile up around that thing. This guy, this is the... They, they, they're like, what is this guy talking about? And so they begin to get their familiarity, their familiarity begins to be this real opposition to seeing Jesus for who he is. He's claiming to be this anointed one, this coming Messiah. And so then, if that doesn't make them angry enough, this idea about this insult of one of them is the Messiah, he quotes this, or he goes to these two Old Testament stories. They're found in 1 Kings, if you want to read these later, they're very interesting stories. The widow of Zarephath is found in 1 Kings chapter 17, and Naaman... The Syrian is in 2 Kings 5. And these amazing stories of, of a widow during a famine in Israel, 
many people that, that God could have shown up to, that Elijah could have shown up to and performed a miracle for them to be able to eat. And instead, God sends them to an outsider, widow of Zarephath and Sidon, outside of the chosen race, goes outside to bring his blessing because it's presumed what he's saying to the people at Nazareth, they were not, no one in Israel wanted to hear it. So God goes to a widow of Zarephath in Sidon. And Naaman is not the only leper in Israel. There would have been scores of people with leprosy in Israel. Yet God, because in his providence, whatever, doesn't see the faith in the people of Israel. Instead, someone who is not familiar with the ways of God, an outsider who's not blocked by familiarity, though the Naaman story is an interesting one. But he comes in and this foreigner, this outsider, this Syrian is healed of his leprosy. God certainly had many who could have been helped by his favor, but all were passed by in these examples. And individuals from outside the norm, outside of the familiarity, were brought in to be blessed. Jesus tells in this story, they don't miss the point. They don't miss the point. He's saying, listen, if you don't want to hear this, that's fine. God's got other people he can hear it. He's got other people that he's ready to bless. If you don't want to accept me as the Messiah... We'll go to the widow of Zarephath. We'll go to Naaman the Syrian. And they blow up, right? (laughs) They're like, I've heard enough from this guy. I've I've put up with this stuff long enough. Take him to the hill, throw him off, stone him, kill him. I don't want, we don't need to be treated like this. Brings us... Why are they so angered? Well, the sermon implication I've already kind of laid out for you. Jesus is calling them the poor. He's calling them the captives. He's calling them the blind. He's calling them the ones who are oppressed. And hometown boy Jesus, he's the one that's going to solve all these problems. They can't take that declaration of this blow to their pride. This passage from Isaiah describing the future coming deliverer is fine so long as it stays future with some unknown deliverer. But Jesus, that guy, we've known him forever. And we are not about to confess ourselves as the poor, the captive, the blind and oppressed once before him. Their familiarity with him keeps them from going as far as they should go in trusting Christ to be the one that he says that he is. And then he goes on to tell the implication that if they don't want to receive it, God has those that will. So it brings us to our final two thoughts. Neither familiarity with Jesus nor familiarity to Jesus is a sufficient replacement for faith in Jesus. These people had familiarity with Jesus. They'd known him all their life. They grew up with him. Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, continues on to be called Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth after his exodus to Egypt and his, and his coming out of Egypt back to the Galilee. He goes to Nazareth and he's raised there. They had a familiarity with him and had known him for so many years. They'd grown up right alongside of him, gone to school with him. They had known him as he moved. There might have been adults in there. They're like, Honestly, I I helped raise you. I was next door to you. I know who you are. And their familiarity with them kept them from him. Application, I think there's a lot of that that still goes on today. Now, none of us have lived with Jesus. No one lives next door to Jesus. But we live in, in a Christianized culture. We've grown up, God bless Midwest Iowa, and I, I love Mount Air. I'm glad this is my home. But we grow up in a bit of a Christian context where kind of you've gone to a kid's club at some point in your life. 
You're, you're, you're familiar with the church. You know the general outline of Jesus. You know that at Christmas, you go to the Christmas Eve service, right? You know that Jesus is the reason for the season, whatever that means, but you know it. <laughs> you, you, you have familiarity with this idea of Jesus. You might even know that Easter's not really about the Easter bunny, but it's about Jesus resurrecting from the dead, and whatever that means, but you know it. You've got familiarity with Jesus. But familiarity with Jesus is not a sufficient replacement for faith in Him for who He is. They would possibly even consider themselves fans of Jesus. I really like that guy in school. I'm a fan of Jesus and people growing up here. I'm all for Him. I think it's great. But when it comes to the crossing the line from, you know, I'm not just familiar with Him. I am a poor, blind, captive, oppressed individual wrecked by my own sin, wrecked by my sinful nature. And I don't need Jesus, my buddy. I need Jesus, my Savior. I need someone who's going to come and rescue the oppressed, the captive, the blind, me. Familiarity with Jesus is not a sufficient replacement for faith in Jesus. Sure, they know Him, but to confess themselves as sinners and in need of His rescue. And I ask you, are we familiar with Jesus or are we trusting, are we placing our faith in Jesus? Not, yes, I know this guy and he's great. And I think he's got a great moral ethic, but listen, I'm a sinner and Jesus is my rescuer. So neither familiarity with Jesus nor familiarity to Jesus. So not only would they have been familiar in knowing of him, they likely would have thought they were like him in many ways. Jesus was a righteous person. He tried to live by a certain moral code. He probably didn't cheat you whenever he measured out his counter to, to prefer his carpentry work for you. He probably was an honest measurer and billed you for the right you know, goods and services. He had good morals. His word was his bond. He, he would have you know, made right choices. He wouldn't have lied. All sorts of good, right things. And they would have said, well... He's not really sure he does all the right things, but I try to do all the right things too. And familiar, So Jesus is here and I'm here and the familiarity to him keeps them from the reality of their desperate need of him. We're nowhere near like Jesus. He's a nice guy and we get along great because, well, I'm a nice guy too. But familiarity to Jesus is not a substitute, substitute to faith in Jesus. And this has particular application, I think, to our context as well. Because again, you got to love Midwest values. Iowa nice, right? Does anybody else? We're Iowa nice. Where you wave down the road, anyone ever go to a city and wave? And they all think, what are you? They must be from Southern Iowa, right? You know, something. You know, we've got Iowa nice. We try to be good people. I bought my first house on a handshake, and I wasn't concerned about it at all, right? And then we eventually drew up papers because the. The, you know, law makes us. But, you know, it was, it was Iowa deal. It was, we're nice people. Our word is our bond. We treat others like we want to be treated. We try to make our yes, yes, and our no, no. And these are all good, right things. Characters that we should emulate and are, in fact, like Jesus. But you know what? All of those things are great and good values to have. And they're values that reflect our good God and Savior. But no matter how familiar your life and deeds may be to those of Jesus... And they will never match perfectly because he is sinless. They are no substitute for faith in Jesus for who he is. Familiarity with Jesus, knowing him. Familiarity too. I try to be a good person like Jesus. Neither one of those is a sufficient replacement for faith in Jesus. 
Luke 13, if you flip on back in your Bible, a couple of just easy stories that prove this point. Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. And then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. They're familiar with Jesus. I tell you, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Familiarity with Jesus is no replacement to faith in Jesus for who he is and what he has done. The other one, Matthew uh, chapter 7. Another just, I mean, clear text. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, and Jesus speaking again says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Boy, they were familiar to Jesus. They did a lot of things that looked just like Jesus. And I, then I will declare to them, Jesus says, verse 23, Jesus will, then I, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Familiarity with and familiarity to Jesus are not sufficient replacements to faith in Jesus for who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, what a hurdle. The first familiarity with Jesus and the second of familiarity to Jesus, they are great hurdles, um, and they are great hurdles to our faith in Jesus, and they blind us to the reality of our desperate state before Jesus. I read this story in a commentary, and I wanted to share it with you here. A large, prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each new year, all the members of the mission churches would come to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches located in the slums of a major city were some outstanding cases of conversions, thieves, burglars, and others. But all knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and became a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few more moments, and the judge said, What a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. A marvelous miracle of grace indeed. The judge then inquired, But to whom do you refer? The former convict, the pastor answered. The judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister, surprised, replied, You were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. You see, the judge went on, It's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him, 
And he understood Jesus could be his Savior. He knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman. That my word was to be my bond. That I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. I was sure I was all I needed to be. Though in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. He says, I'm the greater miracle. Familiarity with Jesus and familiarity to Jesus abounds in our community. Knowing of Jesus, trying to do good things like Jesus, neither one of these are a replacement to faith in Christ. Jesus Christ comes to earth, lives the life we should have lived, dies the death that we deserve on the cross, resurrects from the grave three days later so that through repentance and faith in this work, we can be forgiven of our sins by the grace and mercy of God who is abounding in steadfast love and mercy. We can be forgiven when familiarity with and familiarity to fall away and faith alone in Him remains. So the question becomes for us this morning, what are we depending on? Our familiarity with Jesus? Our familiarity to Jesus? Or are we willing to admit that we are the poor the captive, the blind, and oppressed people that we are. Are we, unlike the other Nazarenes, willing to repent? They had a moment. Jesus shares that story, the widow of Zarephath, shares that story of Naaman the Syrian. You know what they could have done right there? Jesus, you're right. I do need a rescuer. I do. They don't. They, they, they scorn it. They scorn the idea of God's grace coming to them. Are we willing to repent and place our faith in the person and work of this real Savior? Are we blown away by the grace of God coming to even us, held captive by the thoughts of Christ's life, death, and resurrection given for beggars like us? Make no mistake, beggars we all are. Puritans have a saying, the sun that softens the ice hardens the clay. It's the same sun. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The light of the reality of Christ shone on the people of Nazareth and they were hardened. They were hardened. The light of Christ and his gospel shining in this place this morning. Let us not be hardened, but melt before our Savior, not trusting our familiarity with or to him, but faith in him and in his work alone. Let's pray. Father, move in our hearts. Give us faith. Help us to see our sinfulness, our desperate need, our captivity, our blindness our refusal, our enmity towards you. Help us to see it, God, that we would repent, run from these things, and run to you not as, not as a moral leader, as someone to look up to, but as you truly are, the Savior, the Savior, our rescuer, our wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins, and the forgiver of our sins, our justifier by faith alone in the sight of God, our Maker. Give us eyes to see and faith in your work. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.